You never let people take themselves to a place they don't have to go. You help them find the place they should go to. And I think right now in this pandemic, that is by itself such an important message. You can't control the dynamics of the virus. You can surely help control your exposure to it. But by God, you can control how you look at the world and how you engage it. The great leaders are both empathizing and they're also providing the kind of direction that's based on science. And they're always truthful. So back at the beginning of the month, I was paging through the Atlantic magazine and came upon uh, an author of an article by the name of Ed Yong. His article was uh, on December 29th was entitled, Where Year Two of the Pandemic Will Take Us. And what intrigued me most about the article was the notion that at least it seemed like one of the first things that I was reading or hearing that purposely took a look to a post-vaccine world. Um, As excited as we all are to get the shots in the arms, it really went in and took a a number of angles to uh, explore what life will be like. And a few paragraphs in, uh, I recognize the name of Dr. Michael Osterholm, who has a single sentence quote that I believe is truly worthy of exploring here on Tell Me What to Say. He said in the article that we're trying to get through this, meaning the pandemic, with a vaccine without truly exploring our soul. Well, as it can sometimes work out, we are fortunate here on Tell Me What to Say to have as our guest today, Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an American epidemiologist, Regents Professor, and the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. On November 9th, along, if I may say, another former guest of Tell Me What to Say, Dr. Atul Gawande, uh, Dr. Osterholm uh, joined as a member of of President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board, and we have him here with us today. Uh, Doctor, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Drew, for having me. Sure. sure. Can you give us a sense of uh, your thinking uh, as as Mr. Yong and you engaged in your conversation about a post-vaccine world? Well, uh, let me first of all just start out and say that uh, I wish I could dream of a post-vaccine world. I don't think that'll ever happen. I think that what will happen is that the vaccine will become a part of our normal everyday lives. And we will be in a constant battle with this virus for many generations to come. But in the process of what we're going through right now, it reminds me in many ways of the early days of HIV AIDS. I was very involved with that uh, area there. And the issues were far deeper than just a physical disease. It was also about understanding uh, human sexuality. It was about uh, uh, skin color. It was about lifestyle choices. Uh, it was about age. It had many other factors that were baked into the challenges that we had. And this is no different. When you look at this issue, I could start listing a number of things. How many times have I heard, because the vast majority of deaths are in people over age 65, well, it's just an old person's disease, they die anyway. How many times have I heard Well, you know, in the racial inequality area, uh, in terms of the cases, whether black, 
indigenous populations or communities of colors, why were they at such increased risk? And what were the factors responsible for that? It wasn't just because of a virus. It was about their entire socioeconomic status and everyday working conditions that they live in this country and how we put the burden of this on the shoulders and then more uh, in our healthcare workers and how we expose them to anything a battlefield would have done uh, in a foreign country. And without any sense of that, we didn't understand the economic implications of small business owners who have been told to shut down to try to stop the transmission of this virus but without anywhere close to an adequate uh, program to catch them from the fall that they would experience. We didn't have any real discussion of the mental health issues. Asking people to stay literally in a sense locked up for a year or more, the mental health challenges were incredible. When we closed schools, we never really talked about what are the impact on those younger children? Does distance learning really work? What are the safety issues around them being at home all the time versus school? How about food? Are they gonna have a square meal every day? Uh, you know, what are the disadvantages that when you fall behind at that younger age, because distance learning is not necessarily a, an adequate means for educating, what will the implications for that be? What are the implications for wearing a mask that became so politicized that it divided a country around an election? I could go on, Drew, with those issues, and all of them are real. All of them are part of the challenge that we've had. And guess what we talk about? We just talk about the virus, we'll talk about vaccines, but we don't go to the soul of who we are and what we are. And many of these issues are all about that in terms of how we respond. They're in terms of how do we come together? How do we take on the virus? You know, I've felt for, unfortunately, many, many months, it's been us versus us, and all the virus is a part of it, as opposed to us versus the virus. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm really struck and, and, and humbly can say that as I go into the organizational worlds that I um, work in, perhaps the most provocative question I ask is not so much about the problem itself, but about why it's happening. So, so let me pursue that for a second with you as you just did that very uh, concerning audit of what we didn't do. What do you believe is at the heart of why people avoid the deeper, more substantive look at these things? Well, if I could be a psychiatrist for the world, <laughs> I probably do a better job answering that. But I think right now, uh, you know, we record this uh, today on the inaugural day and the emotions running so high in this country, some with great hope, some with, with great joy, others with great anger, with uh, great concern. Uh, how did we get like this? You know, what brought us here? Well, now what you do is you put a virus into this situation like we have. And, uh, you know, it's I put it in a match to a gas can. And unfortunately, with a virus like this, and given the political implications of a world where it's not even about the virus, it's just about the politics, it's like putting a match in a gas tanker. And so to, you know, to say what psychologically we could deal with or how could we deal with it, I think it's much larger than this. I think this is something we're going to be studying for many years. And we're not done. You know, I, I worry desperately that we're yet to see the darkest days of the pandemic. While the vaccines are coming, they'll be slow in coming to really protect that many people in our country, even if we 
are able to achieve the goal that the new president has set of 1 million, 100 million doses in the first 100 days, that'll still only protect about 14% of our nation's population. Um, if you look at the these new variant viruses, the ones that are going through this mutation, we see some with greatly enhanced transmission. Uh, I think right now we we have a situation where, um, you know, that over the course of the next three or four months could make everything else that's happened seem rather uh, not nearly as serious. That's that's a frightening thought. So the issues that I just raised are only going to be magnified and amplified even more over the course of the next uh, next few months, and I worry about that a lot. Yeah. Are, are you at all um, able, especially around this issue of the depth of the problem, if you will, uh, emotionally, psychologically, socially, are you able at all to, to characterize the conversations, if any, that go on with the advisory board, with the president? In other words, are we looking at this issue that you describe uh, uh, in, in any way that gives you hope? Um, we will individually, I'm sure, stay in uh, frequent contact with our colleagues in the federal government who are part of the Biden administration and will continue to work with them. But to answer your question, as of the last one to two days, I can say that uh, uh, the in, new incoming administration has people on board that get this very clearly. Uh, they do understand the breadth and the magnitude of what we're talking about and the fact that we're far from done. They also understand that the ongoing havoc that this causes from an economic standpoint and why we so desperately need Congress to pass the proposed legislation that the administration has put forward just to help these local communities, our cities, our towns out here survive and the people who live in them. Uh, we are really in dire straits right now. Many small business owners, many people who are what we call the essential workers. Uh, this is a real challenge. So I, I do know that they have uh, the right people on board to address this issue. And now we need Congress to help out. Do they have to, to build on, on this notion of the soul, though? Are you at all confident that the, the deeper, more profound exploration will be made here? I am in the sense that if you look at the proposed legislation that's come forward, a great deal of that is about supporting local communities. Uh, everything from rent uh, to small business support, uh, unemployment support, uh, all the things that are going to make it easier for us to actually try to control this virus transmission uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. If we're going to ask a single mom who is a waitress who's lost her job, who has two kids living under a rented roof that she may not be able to keep and trying desperately to put food on the table. Here we sit today with one out of eight families in the U.S. actually being food deprived. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that if you can't deal with those issues, you're not going to keep that mom from trying to find a job uh, and out and about, you know, when we're trying to limit people being exposed to the virus. So I think in that regard, yes, they get it. That's in the program. That's what's been proposed to Congress. Do I think it's enough? Not nearly enough. Uh, and I think that you heard uh, Janet Yellen in her uh, hearing uh, uh, commentary over the course of this past week address this issue before her, her Senate committee, and in which for, she did say that much more was going to be needed at the community level to support our response. That's, to me, 
not just humanitarian, that is strategic investment because the way we're going to be able to uh, literally s- slow down this transmission to let the vaccine catch up is to not let people have to go into harm's way. And if you're trying to find a job, if you're out there in that environment, uh, that's tough. Uh, we can't we can't slow down transmission there. And I think that's what why we need the support. Yeah. One of the pieces of advice that I give is about uh, how to deal uh, as an individual with uh, a situation that is not going well. And there's an old uh, analogy or, 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 or piece of advice that a, a, a book taught me that said, the best leaders when times are bad uh, know the difference between looking in the mirror versus looking out the window. You know, and the best ones remember that when things are bad to look in the mirror. Mm-hmm. What can I do? Right? What? Because at the heart of that is individual yeah, yeah. choice. As as a doctor, as a as a deep thinker on this, what what can one person along with the mask and the distance and everything, but what can we do around the issue you've highlighted here? You know, um, Vision is an interesting thing. So let me ask you, what is that leader who's blind sees? What do they see? Because they don't, they can't distinguish between the mirror and the window. Right. And they have to be able to lead by seeing both. And I think that the question you're asking is very important. And so I do see the leadership qualities. But, you know, I do a, a weekly podcast, the Ostrom Update. And uh, we now have, you know, many, many thousands of followers. And one of the uh, aspects of that podcast that I have really felt connected to, because it's actually almost self-therapy for me, is that it's not just presenting the science. It's trying to, you know, like I said, call balls and strikes and just get it right. But it's also encouraging the fact that, that we are one big podcast family and that kindness is everything. And I have worked really hard to try to promote a pandemic of kindness. And we can't control so many things that aren't happening right now, but we can control how we feel about them. We can control how we express ourselves that way. And creating that pandemic of kindness, I think, has given people a very different view of the virus and what can be done about it. So I think we can do a lot that way. And it's just our attitude. You know, are we going to be angry and and are we going to be scared? Are we going to, you know, be vengeful about this? Or are we going to say, you know, we're in a bad spot. What can I do to help? And I think it's that can-do attitude. And I have a sense just from your work that, you know, that's the kind of thing that you, you never let people take themselves to a place they don't have to go. You help them find the place they should go to. And I think right now in this pandemic, that is by itself such an important message. You know, you can't control the dynamics of the virus. You can surely help control your exposure to it. But by God, you can control how you look at the world and how you engage it. And and you can live in a world of fear, self-pity, or you can live in a world of, I'm going to make it a better place today. And I'm going to wake up every day thinking today is my day to do this kind of act of kindness. They don't have to be big. They can be really small. And so I think that's, for me, the message that I think is really important. The great leaders are both empathizing, they are understanding that, and they're also providing the kind of direction that's based on science. 
that is the best truthful information. And they're always truthful. They're always truthful. You know, I have found that, you know, some people have found it very hard to listen to me because I have given uh, a sense of where this thing has been, where it's going. But I think over time, they've come to understand that I'd rather know the truth than to not know the truth. But I also would like to see that with empathy and understanding of what does that truth mean then. Yeah. And, well, and Drew, if I could, I'm going to ask for a shameless opportunity here. But sure. um, early on in the pandemic, I, I recognized the uh, challenges this virus was presenting to our healthcare workers. And first a challenge, then basically became even much more severe than that. And right now we have over 2,400 healthcare workers in this country who have died from COVID-19. Now, clearly not all of those acquired it at work, but many did. And talk about being, you know, putting your life on the line to help the lives of others. And so several months ago, uh, I helped start a effort called the Frontline Families Fund. And this is an effort to raise funds to support the family members of healthcare workers who have died from COVID-19. And many of them were people who had, you know, minimal means, they, the nursing assistants, the ward clerks, the environmental sanitation folks, who literally single moms who left behind two young kids with nothing for them to have. And so what we're doing right now is providing immediate support when someone dies in the healthcare area for many cases, just be funeral arrangements. Uh, and then the potential based on need, there's more money available. And finally, the last piece is for every uh, child of a parent who died from COVID-19, we're doing the best we can to provide them a college scholarship to go to the college of their choice. And it doesn't matter whether it's next year or it's 18 years from now. And we're working with College America on that. And so I, I just urge people, if you have an interest, uh, fully tax deductible uh, is some of the best money you could ever spend. Uh, it's frontlinefamiliesfund.org, uh, and it's to take care of those healthcare workers' families who need help, who have been on the front lines, and they gave their all to this issue. Well, thank you for uh, offering that opportunity there at the end. That was frontlinefamiliesfund.org. Yep. Uh, there are many, many ways to make a difference. This certainly is a way to make a substantive, long-lasting one. So. Uh, I, I, I join. Thank you. Thank you very much for letting me do that. It's very meaningful to me. I know far too many families who have lost loved ones taking care of others. Well, uh, expect expect a little bit of support uh, coming from. <laughs> thank you, sir. Of these listeners, doctor. Thank you. I will let you get back to work. Thank you for your perspective, calling the balls and strikes as you see them, and um, let's stay at that. I appreciate it, and thank you for getting the message out and and for how you do it. <laughs>